and I was working, you know, 70 or 80 hours a week for like 12 grand a year or something. It was, it was really painful. I think you have to lead by example. And I think EQ is probably the single biggest skill that you need when you're managing people and you're running a business. The more senior you become, the more expert you become. It is a sales job. It's about your clients. It's about what they need from you. And it's about how you solve things for them. And ultimately, dating is all about KPIs, right? Oh, <laughs> to me. The thing that I tell people all the time, internally and externally, is don't ever confuse change with progress. Hi, I'm Chris Lisserman and welcome to Sparks, a series by Interactive Workshops. In every episode, we spark something in work and life, from how to spark excellence, to how to spark energy, to how to spark, Jonna, just the right number of notifications to your devices at all times from all the apps. Yeah, well, the good thing is I've got options on that, so I can now assess which notifications I want. I can choose those. The only thing is if I sign up for a new thing, I just get thousands of notifications. Yeah, overload it instantly. Yeah. But as you know, I don't check my messages anyway. <laughs> Currently got 1,500 on my voicemails. Yeah. Um, so notifications mean nothing to me. I feel like there should be an app, but that app itself, in dealing with the notifications, would give you a load of notifications, uh, wouldn't it? Is there a notifications aggregator? I'd love that. Nice. Something that could synergize uh, all the messages into a it's simple one. Yeah. summary. Be good. Brings us to our topic, Chris. Brings us to our topic, a bit of synergy with another very special guest. Jonna, introduce we, them. We have a very special guest, all the way from Dartmouth Partners, top specialist boutique mm. recruitment firm. Boutique. <laughs> and uh, we've got CEO Terry Losker. Welcome what? to the show. Thank you very much. So great to be here. We've got the chief. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you've had a glittering career, Terry. You've been at Dartmouth Partners since it was founded. And you've risen all the way to the top. Something we could only dream only of. Only dream of, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Is it as uh, easy as they make out in um, the magazines? <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. You know what? It's, it's a lot that's the same. Uh, and then there's a tiny little bit that's different, but the bit that's different is incredibly important. Which bit is that? So the topics that you're talking about are the same and a lot of the problems that you're trying to deal with are the same, you know, the challenges, the questions, all of that sort of stuff. And you'll sit in a room and you'll discuss all of those things. And then at the end of that discussion, the room will go silent and you'll suddenly realise, oh no, I'm the one who needs to speak. I'm the one who needs to decide what happens next. Mm. And that I think is um, is a... It's a real responsibility. And it all comes down to responsibility, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, and, 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 and that sense of accountability. You know, ultimately, the book stops with you for everything. Yeah. Um, and that takes a bit of getting used to. It's mm. a little bit of a, a mantle that you have to wear, a cloak that you have to wrap yourself in, that, the, the fact that there's not actually anyone above and there's mm. not actually anyone else. Mm. It's, it's you. I think, um, I think a big part of getting the job actually is being willing to be really uncomfortable at times mm. because like sometimes that is an uncomfortable place to be you know you put yourself in uncomfortable situations you get up and do the end of your presentations you do podcasts like this you guys are not super intimidating but still you know you you put yourself out of your comfort zone and you you know you you are the person where you know everything mm. everything sits with you and I think part of the job is being willing to be under that kind of pressure mm. yeah um yeah I don't know why I don't know what. I don't know if I ever decided that I was willing to be under that kind of pressure, but I am now. So. You've ended up that <laughs> yeah, way. Here yeah, I, here yeah. I am, and it's and, and uh, can I say when you do speak up, your voice so clear, communicator. Yes, we were great. just talking about that before we started, John, weren't we? You'd never know Terry was from the Potteries. Stoke <laughs> no, Trent. Stoke. It's not. I didn't know that was the Stoke accent. Yeah, either, yeah. This is uh, this is a you know a sort of an evolved Stoke accent. <laughs> let's call tell it. Us, this is tell a, us sorry, a little bit about your story then. So yeah. I'm imagining that there wasn't a girl in school thinking. One day I'd like to be a CEO of a recruitment consulting firm. <laughs> so what, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a forester. I thought that'd be excellent, tramping around outside with a chainsaw. That sounds like a great job, actually. Yeah, what did you want to do? Um, so I, I studied classics at university, which is a really interesting degree, but absolutely useless for anything in the real world. Um, you find a lot of politicians who are classicists, but pretty much nothing else. Um, but I finished my degree and I thought could I work in a museum? <laughs> could I work in a, an auction house? You know, I've been surrounded by old books and manuscripts and things. So I ended up doing an unpaid internship in an auction house for a year. 
And in order to pay to live in London, I also worked in a bar on Drury Lane, a place called the White Heart, which is um, is, is, is in theatre land. So you get loads of stag do's, loads of hen do's. It was just opposite Hairspray at the time. Like that dates me, I think. Michael <laughs> Michael. Michael Ball, I think oh, it's his eyes. Oh, yeah. oh, oh yeah. I woke up this day feeling this <laughs> way like I now. always do. Like that. You know. Yeah, <laughs> you oh, know. Yeah. Um, and, and I was working, you know, 70 or 80 hours a week for like 12 grand a year or something. It was, it was really painful. Um, but and, and I, and I realized, you know, you, you, you could sit in this industry for 10, 20 years, but you're not progressing unless the guy next, and it's always a guy, but you know, they, they, I'm so sorry, the, sorry. <laughs> what can we do? Yeah. yeah. One yeah. out of three is not bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but why is it always you? <laughs> that is so true. Um, but you, you realize like there's no moving up, you know, there's no moving on until somebody else does, you know, there's no sense of meritocracy, but they're all selling stuff. You know, at the end of the day, I thought it was this, you know, refined, you know, their manuscripts, they're all maps that, you know, it's, it's intellectually challenging. It's a sales job. Mm. And so many industries are really, you know, the more senior you become, the more expert you become. It is a sales job. It's about your clients. It's about what they need from you. And it's about how you solve things for them. And so, anyway, so if it, but what really happened is a, <laughs> a guy who used to work in a recruitment firm on Drury Lane was trying to chat me up. And okay. he uh, he said, yeah, yeah, I can get you a, I can get you a job interview. You, in my- you trust the <laughs> um, dating skills of someone who works in recruitment agency. The recruiters That's, are great at recruiting. Yeah. They're, right? great, they're, <laughs> not, they're good at rapport building, yep. influencing, yep. meeting new people, mm. encouraging people, getting them to step out of their comfort zone, make a change. And ultimately, dating is all about KPIs, right? Like, you, you know, yeah, you collect enough numbers <laughs> no in the end. <laughs> to me. You, wow. you go on enough dates, you kiss enough frogs, and at the end of the day, okay. you'll find your, you'll find the right guy. And it's I, a funnel. <laughs> it's a funnel. And you're just so, yeah, whittling it's them it's down. It's a sales yeah. funnel. Yeah. It's a sales so funnel. He, he just took the same approach, I think, to uh, to, to dating works. as he did to, yeah. yeah. So he tried to get me a job in his recruitment firm, and I didn't get it, which, you know, I think was heartbroken at the time. But I, wo- I remember waking up, and I got this call, you, know, you haven't got the job. And I thought, okay but I could get a job in this industry. Maybe not this one, but I could get a different job in a recruitment firm. And that would be better than working 70 or 80 hours a week for 12 grand a year. Mm. Um, And so five days later, I got a job in recruitment working for my old boss, Logan Naidu, who still is part of the group, still runs Mm. Colonel Global, which is the group that I'm part of. And I've worked with him now for 14 years. Brilliant. Since since that fateful day. So you're sticking around with Logan and aren't we going to get a little bit into the topic, but our, Mm. uh, our topic today is synergy. We thought we're always trying to think about how you can spark things in work and life, but we thought this is like part of the the biggest thing about work is can we get everything working together? Can we orchestrate things? Can we get person X to synergize person Y? Can we bring client A and client B and find a a win-win situation for them? Mm. Uh, But I'm thinking like now you're, you're top of the, the tree and you're, you're looking in those, longer term things you're trying to work out how to bring all the the instruments in the orchestra together and trying to get everything playing well how's how how do you go about synergizing a a bigger company how do you get that to work that is a great question i don't know the answer that's why i'm hoping you can help me (laughs) okay could you give me some advice i'm running a bigger company (laughs) i don't know how to get it to work let's clear this up (laughs) uh i've got too many bassoons not enough trombones how do you go about getting uh, a whole team like that together in the best way you know how honestly i would i would love to have the answer to that and actually i spend much more of my time now more than ever trying to answer that question so Mm. a big part of the job i I talk about conducting traffic often the orchestra is it's the same kind of analogy that is exactly what the job is i think you know i work in a business where we have you know 120 people most of whom are you know, they've got a day job, they've got a, a client base, they've got people who depend on them, they've got things that they need to deliver day in, day out. They don't necessarily have one eye on, you know, what's the kind of, you know, if I just take a slight left turn, is there a greater commercial opportunity over here for my colleague, for my friend? Is this, you know, is, this, is there a way that I could take a bit of a, additional value off the table? Could I create more value for the organisation? Um, it's really difficult to get people out of the weeds and I'm, be able to see that. I'm thinking also that your organisation is quite a relatively flat structure. How do you get that group of people synergized and working together? Many companies in that setup struggle with the individualized nature of everyone looking after their own revenue and P&L, whatever else, their own clients. How do you make a team or some kind of teamwork in that, that kind of environment? I'll tell you, I think actually the thing that we've been struggling with a bit more recently, and I think that this is relevant to lots of businesses that have grown to any kind of scale, is that scaling basically involves putting some sort of process into things. 
you know, and, and becoming more process driven and having some kind of controls over like quality controls, controls over the way that you deliver work, the way that you, you know, kind of kind of win clients, um, all of those sorts of things. And what you lose often is a bit of flair mm. um, and you lose a bit of indivi individuality. You lose, a you know, a, that kind of great salesperson or that great client relationship person because you're focused more on the on the process and those people become the outliers rather than the you know the kind of those at the forefront yeah and part of our conversation at the moment is like actually how do we get a bit of flair back into you know some of what we're doing how do we you know how do we tap into that that really dynamic really creative commercial thinking that you know people in our industry that can you know uh, our client facing industry are so good at how can you rekindle that kind of spirit of entrepreneurship? Yeah, absolutely. And entrepreneurship and, is the right word. And yeah. have brilliant individuals whilst also having a strong collective as yeah. well. People who can express themselves, but also work with others. Really and follow processes and, follow and make sure follow leaders. things done properly. All yeah. the things. Yeah. I think building the right platform is quite a big part of it, actually. I think... You know, we, we were talking about this earlier. We we have a very diversified platform, um, but within very complementary areas. So we do recruit. We are a boutique, but we recruit into a number of different verticals. And those verticals sit really closely together. They're very complementary. Um, and our business creates a kind of gravitational force where, you know, you you have a strength in one area. It opens up doors and opportunities yeah. in another area. Um, that makes it easier to, to win. It's kind of like a flywheel. You know, yeah, we you, found that when we opened our New York office. Mm -hmm. uh, People think, I mean, anyone can open a New York office. You just need one person in New York with a desk. But people think that when they look in, they think, wow, those people must know something because they've got this here and there. It's similar across sectors, isn't it? You think, oh, right, well, you, you work in finance, but you also place yeah. people in for M&A, you, you know, consultancy. People look at the different verticals and think, oh, right, if they, they, they know what they're doing across lots of complementary areas. I think that's right. I think, I also think, you know, if you're known for delivering work into um, largely, so it's either front office, it's high impact revenue generating or it's high impact strategic. Like generally speaking, these are roles that are incredibly important to the organizations that we're recruiting for. And so there's a there's a kind of credibility that comes with that. You know, you can solve our most challenging problems. And so therefore, I'm going to come to you when I have my next problem or my next problem. And that might not just be human capital. That might be, you know, how do I drive my DNI agenda or how do I think about my talent pipeline for the next five years? You know, you it, it starts to lead you in really interesting directions as long as you're capable then of having those conversations with them when they come to you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm quite interested. So we're all parents around this table. Yeah. Do you run a similar you seem very CEO like and kind of uh <laughs> Even if you slightly sit in the meetings thinking, hang on a minute, is it me that's going to take this decision? But uh, I'm interested, like, is, are you the same kind of person when you're outside of work, whether social life, home life? Because one of the, the big challenges in modern life is, is trying to synergize all the different elements, all the pressures. Um, you know, you've got your P&L at work, but you've got your finances at home. You've got your investment decisions at work, but you've got your mortgage um, decisions at home and whether to buy the new car or wh you know, which supermarket to go to to get the best values so all the same stuff do you do you run ceo brain at home <laughs> or do you, is that is that different and you kind of switch off and you're someone else at home um i think i think all of my CEO energy and my CEO brain goes into my CEO job and I, I find that. I find I find that and actually you'll find most recruiters so people and you know for years historically I was on the phone interviewing people constantly I was you know you constantly meeting people talking to people asking them questions about themselves the thought of them ringing your mother on a Saturday afternoon or you know having a conversation with one of your friends is it's like absolutely not you know you i would be, never be, yeah. you know no. the thought of picking up the phone is like absolute zero you know it's it, you would, it would never occur to you and i think there's something similar when you when you move into a new role and you take on those new responsibilities you funnel so much of the energy you have for that thing into that role that what you have left over at work at, at home is like the other part of yourself you know which is like I don't have to drive the agenda at home. I don't have to make every decision on where we go at the weekend or what we do or, you know, who we see. Um, and I'm very happy to to leave some of that to my husband. Take a back seat. Yeah, you know. and he's, I mean, you know, we're having an extension built at the moment and he's very much project manager of that. And for me, it's like, you know, show me your top three choices and I'll pick one. But that's yeah. it. I do not want any involvement beyond that. You don't have the energy to be CEO in that environment. That is, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, that is the CEO. Throw so many three options and I'll pick one. <laughs> that's, that's your CEO, CEO exactly approach. Maybe that's true. Maybe I am <laughs> yeah. the CEO. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do think for me, it flips as a manager. It flips between sometimes going home buzzing and, and coming home in a bit of a management mode of, right, 
this let's get this done. Let's get this done. Yeah. What can I drive forward? And other days, it's like exactly what you're describing. I'm done. My my management energy, my thinking energy, my social energy is done, and I just need to maybe lie down. I yeah. People sometimes say to me, "You've got so much energy. Where do you get it from?" And it's like resting. <laughs> <laughs> I go to bed at nine thirty every, nearly every night. Latest ten o'clock. I don't drink. Uh, I spend large parts of the weekends laying around while my children are out in the park playing football or riding a horse or what they're doing. It's like I don't um, burn the candle at both ends because mm. I, need, I need all that for this. And yeah. I, I, they're seeing you when you're using the energy, not when yeah. you're re-energizing. Yeah, exactly. And I feel also actually as, as our business has got bigger, the decision-making power that I've got for home has got less. And, and like things that in the past I'd really proactively sort out and drive forward mm. actually, you know, the... 10 years ago, build an extension, let's do it. Mm. Now it's like, just, you know, I've got so much headspace on work. Mm. Yeah. Don't really need another yeah. project. Yeah. Mm. And something we've talked about, John, on the podcast before is the idea of work-life balance being a bit of a myth. And those things aren't in direct tension. They're not in competition. You have to keep living as you're working. I'm wondering what you think about that, Terry. I mean, I think, I think ultimately we're all three-dimensional people. I think that like that's fundamentally it. And I think there is a place in your life for work and home life and family and hobbies and, all, you know, all of the stuff that you would want as part of your life. But then they're never going to take an equal share, you know, and and like my priority list and the kind of, you know, the things that I want to spend my time on and the, the things that I want to do. It's just a case of ordering them you know and and they're never all going to get equal attention they're also never all going to get attention at the same time you know there's I, I had a kid 18 months ago and I was stepped into this role only two or three months ago and my my diary is suddenly significantly busier than it's been for for a while Uh-oh. and Uh-oh. you know I, I just had to accept that this is not the year that I'm going to train for a triathlon right like it's not the year that I'm gonna you know I, I I love the Tour de France I'd love the Giro like I would love to do some of those cycles I'm like I'm not gonna do them in the next year or two or three years should we book in for next year <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe next year maybe, maybe that's an ambition um but you you know you cut your cloth um right. according to what's important to you what you want to invest in right now um but in the same way that you you know there's a finite pot of money you have and you invest in some of the things that you believe in and you kind of you know, put it in this savings account or that savings account. I think your time and your energy is the same. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm also, I'm in a fortunate position in that, like, I, I can work, I could do a really interesting job and I want to do that really interesting job. And so it's a choice that I make. You know, I choose to spend time at work um, and I choose to really, you know, invest in that. It means that I miss out on things elsewhere and that's a, a conscious choice. Um but I also choose to be at home at times and I miss out on things at work. Yeah. And, I, and I know I'm doing mm. that too. Mm. We see it sometimes actually the, the parenting crew amongst us on the work socials. And it's like, who's slipping off early? And it's, you, can, you know who it's going to be. They're, they're thinking through all their priorities in life. Yeah, They know they need what to invest some into work. I mean, sometimes they'll be the last one standing as well. But, but there's a, additional sets of layers of thoughts. Mm. About and priorities. What, and priorities. As you, as you described. Yeah. And um, again, like, you know, you, you think you know, your kid's sick. You've got to be there. You're, you've got other things in your mind, but yet you can't. You can't let your work focus slip. It can't. Can't drop off. It's quite. I think it's quite a challenge. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a challenge. And I think no matter who you are and what kind of job you have, I don't, like people don't want to turn up to work to do a bad job. Generally no. speaking, I don't think people people feel good about that. And people generally, you know, they want to turn up and do the best that they can. But I think there's also a reality that there'll be times in your life where you can't give anywhere close to 100 percent. Like you can't even, you know, you can't even give 70 or 80 percent. If you know, you might have aging parents, you might have like other stuff going on. Yeah. Like there's just a reality to that. Um, and I think, you know, I'm I'm lucky in that when I came back from maternity leave, I had, a, I mean, I was I was relatively senior. I've been in the business for a long time. Those things help. Might don't get me wrong. Um, but I also had in, an incredibly supportive group of people, all male, by the way, around me saying, you know, you, you take on as much or as little as you want, um, but we'll, we'll find a path for you to, to come back to work and to, and to make it worthwhile. Because I think, I think in those first three or four months, the hardest thing is, like, there's so much to balance and it's just a hassle and you're doing a bad job on both sides. And if you don't feel like it's worth it, do you just opt out? You know, do you just say, okay, I'm going to focus on one and not the other? Yeah. And that's my choice for the next two mm. or three or four mm. years. You, that's interesting. Some people do make that choice, but you didn't. You just said, I'm going to give everything yeah. a go. I'm going to do my best. 
But I think people can buy into that. They can buy into someone who's prepared to take on challenges and it's, it's similar actually in a in a sports team or something like that when well, let's say uh you're you're a domestique in the tour and uh you know you're asked to do a role and said you won't you won't be the best up the mountain you won't be the fastest but your job is to work really really hard at the bottom piece someone else is going to get the glory i think it's interesting people can buy in people can buy into someone who works hard and um it's obvious that you're garnering that around you yeah, I think you I think you have to lead by example. And that doesn't mean look, I, I worked for a CEO for years who was, you know, first in the office in the morning, last out at night, and took real pride in saying, you know, I will always be the hardest worker in the room. And that's, you know, that's brilliant and that's that's, you know, incredibly I mean, it's it's to a large extent, it's probably got us to where we are today, or at least it's played a big part in it. But there's also a reality to lots of people's lives where, you know, I can't be the first in the room and I can't be the last out the door. There are other demands that I have on my time. But what I can say is like all the things that I need to do, I'm going to get done. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm ever at a point where I'm not doing them well enough, like you can tell me. Where, where do you where do you think you get your drive from? Because um, it, not, not everybody has, everyone has different levels of drive. Some people have high levels of drive, but that, that drive can come from different places. I'm curious where, what you think it is that sparks you, that makes you want to do your, you said people want to come to work, do their best, but you want to do your real best. What, what's, where's that coming from? I mean, I think the, I think the work ethic originally, you know, growing up, my mom always earned more than my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and not like dramatically, but it, she was, she was clearly the, what did you she know, do for a job? She was, she worked in pensions, you know, and my, you know, my parents, but like they didn't go to university. They kind of, you know, she was a pensions administrator for what was ta- like, it became Watson Wyatt, tells Watson. Yeah. But it was bought five times and she was made redundant three times. And, you know, it's, but she, but she was really diligent. She worked really hard and she enjoyed her work. Um, and, but it was, you know, she was the person who earned more money and that I knew that growing up and my dad hated his job and he like, he made glasses at Specsavers and boots. Um, we need glasses he, as well. They say, yeah, sure. I mean, it's like, required. Yeah. He, he just, work. He's just one of those people that he could not wait to retire. And he did because my mom was a pensions administrator. So she, she sorted them both out. So they were fine. That's but, really um, funny. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but, but, but that I think very early set an expectation. And then I, I went to university, I went to Oxford and there were, I've been to Oxford uh, as well, by the way. It's a, like, it's did nice. you visit or were you studying there? I stayed for four years. <laughs> I, they I just visited. Yeah, they, I was just for a day. Yeah. They didn't make me leave in that four years. But um, but I met a lot of people there who, I think it came from very traditional backgrounds, let's say. And there was a very there was a very clear dynamic between some of the men and women um, that I'd gone to Oxford with. And I think I think I really, at that point, felt like I want to be able to earn my own money. Like yeah. I want to buy a flat that's my own. Yeah. And I want to... I want to feel like I've played a part. And now I have a son, actually. The um, I found myself thinking more about how do I want him to view me and how do I want him to see me? What's like What do I want him to think of when he thinks of me? Um, and I, I think it's really important that it's not, you know, daddy makes all the money, you know, and daddy, daddy, d- daddy yeah. buys the holidays and daddy does this and that. And like, there's a role for women to play, which is nurturing and, 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 and so on. And I would like to think I do that too. Um, so that perception has oh. become a driver. Yeah, absolutely. And I find, you know, I I think still with I think whether you have a son or a daughter, there can quite often be this dynamic of, you know, oh, silly mommy, you know, oh, silly mommy doing silly things. And even for even for daughters, I think they quite like to I think they gravitate towards men. I think they gravitate towards that. Not always, but often that sense of, you know, he's the one in control. And I kind of want to be with, you know, I want to be with him. Um, And we're really careful about that at home you know like everybody's got a role to play and it doesn't have to be equal it doesn't have to be those things but for me it's really important that he sees me as somebody who's contributed in lots of ways and not just at home yeah that's great i'm thinking it because i sometimes feel that if you look at the portrayal of dads peppa pig's dad for example we're not at peppa pig yet uh he's just he's slightly chubby and a bit stupid homer simpson (laughs) slightly chubby and a bit stupid but it's interesting, isn't it? Our stereotyped views of how parents may or may not be, mm. what roles they may or may not take, uh, mm. you know, the what we project onto our kids, what we set expectations set them. Mm. I love to mix it up. I love to change it up. And it's also you said, talked about nurturing, like men can be very nurturing as well, and well, we sh- we should be. We should do it. We should 
yeah. do all the nurturing we can do. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm pretty quite overly emotional as a person. And so I'm able to jump into my kids' emotions with them. And I find it really important. And it's the same empathy skill I use at work. Yeah. Same as at work. Sometimes you want to empathize with someone. Sometimes you want to create a little bit of conflict with someone to get, to get a reaction. But it's the same with the children. Can you use those EQ skills to, to get involved? But my mum was inc- is incredibly empathetic, and I think I learned it all from her. Yeah. And it's gone from mother to son. Yeah. And then I've got my kids, and it's like, how can I get you get them to get that kind of feeling about people? Yeah. Like my mum's inc- incredible EQ, and um, yeah, it's like it's bit, but it's been it's familial. Her mum was like that as well, but it's yeah. come in our family. It's come to me. It's yeah, like, and I was I was thinking about how. When I grew up, I remember my dad working hard, working late, coming back late, waiting for him to get home, you know, staring out the window and thinking, when I've got kids, I don't want to do that. I want to be, I want to be there for the mm. evening. I want to be having the playtime, coming home, playing hide and seek or whatever that is. And then now with a, a daughter who's two, I'm thinking, I need to go out. I need to work hard. And I need to keep my job. I need to grow. I need to develop. And then hang on. Now I'm yeah. doing the same thing. I'm working hard. I'm working late, maybe doing stopovers in London to make it all work. And I'm I'm just into the same pattern. I have to clock it. Go actually, if I want to be different, if I want to, if I want to find some synergy yeah. I haven't already got, I need to change adjust, the patterns. Change the yeah. pattern. Yeah, break out of the loop. Can we talk a little bit about guilt? Right, boss guilt, mum guilt, dad guilt. Touched on it there in terms of um, thinking through my working pattern. Thinking, oh, am I being the the dad I want to be? Am I being the worker so you've I want to be? Got some. I've got a bit. Yeah, Terry. Ha- what about you? Do you have a bit? Yeah, I've, I mean, I've got, I've got plenty, but I try. I think it's a choice. I think I think it's a choice to feel guilty or not. Okay. If you, I mean, you have to you have to be disciplined and you have to control it. But I think I think you have to own your decisions, and you have to. When we, at Dartmouth, we talk a lot about being deliberate. You know, my, about making deliberate choices, about making deliberate decisions, and you know, our reactions need to be deliberate. And I think, I think quite often that guilty feeling is like, oh, I've, I've, I've drifted. You know, I've drifted into you know, six thirty, six forty-five. I'm going to miss bedtime, and I didn't mean to, and I wanted to see him. And you know, I think if you're if you're not deliberate about it, and you're not if you you're not thinking about how you want to choose use your time, then you should feel you know that's like that's fair enough. I mean, that's you know you, you you're not really thinking about how you prioritize the things that are important to you. Um, I try really hard, and actually, we, so we have a, we have a schedule. You know, we have a rule. We set a boundary really early on, which is you know we want our son to see one of our faces. First thing in the morning, like we will always get up out of bed with him and there will never be somebody else. And he will always see one of us before the end of the day. And like he, we will always do bedtime with him. And there's an occasional grandparent in there like, yeah. and they love it. So it's Thanks, fine. Grandparents. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, we couldn't live without you. Yeah. Um, but there's an occasional grandparent in there. But apart from that, that's it. Like that's the boundary. And yeah. and that means that like two nights a week, I, I'm out the door at 6.15 and I'm like, I'm backing out the door at 6.15. You know, you could be talking to me. You could be saying, you know, just one more thing, just one more thing. It's like, like put it in an email. You yeah. know, I'm not listening. One of the greatest clients that we've ever worked with uh, is a, I can't, I, because it's private, I don't want to say exactly who it is, but it's, it was one vertical of a big consulting company. And in this vertical, nearly all the senior leaders were women and nearly all the team were women as well. There's a lot of, lot of women working there. And I asked the leader of this uh, section, Jane, why her section, her vertical, was delivering so much more growth and so much more profitability than similar other verticals. And she said to me, John, she said, we're all mums. Everybody here wants to get home for bath time. So when we show up to work, we get it all done. Like, we're not interested. Anything that's discretionary, it's not, we just, let's get it all done. Let's get home. We've all got the same focus we want to get it home. We want to get home to our kids, and um, uh, it was what was interesting was she said, yeah, but um, some of our male colleagues, they basically are trying not to go home because they'd rather they get don't want home. to interrupt bedtime. They, right? they, no, they'd, no, not they don't want to. Is it not that they don't want to be at all? They don't want to be there at all. <laughs> they'd rather get home when everything's done. Right. And I was like, this has never occurred to me because yeah. I'm a family person. I want to be there, but I see it also here. People who've got things to get home for, they're driving to get home. They want to get their jobs done. They get the jobs done. They're able to crack on or sometimes you know leave the office at four o'clock go home do school pickup do bedtime do a bit of work but luckily the world has changed hasn't it that we're not it's tied to our gender roles or our desks 
and we can say to people that our home life is allowed to be visible in our workplaces to some extent. Mm. Yeah, we've definitely got more fathers now who are who are really open about, you know, I want to do drop off a couple of nights a week. I've got to, you know, there's a, a football thing that my son goes to and I, like, I want to be there on a Friday night when he goes to that. And, you know, the, the kind of various things that, that fit around that. And, and you kind of... Like, what can you say to that as an employer? You know, you're really going to make your staff choose between their work and their family. Like, you know, you're only ever going to lose that equation. Yeah, it's not going to work that well. No. Chris is going to be making some adjustments to his schedule. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I feel like I don't not... actually, feel, I never feel that kind of guilt. I, I, I agree with what you're saying, Terry, that I do actually think it comes down to a bit of a lack of clear thinking. And then the other thing, which when I became, you said that you've got your golden rules, I was, let's not do anything that we don't, doesn't fit with how we think you should parent let's do it the way we think you should do it but i think it's the same in any job role at ceo i should do this job the way i think it should be done mm-hmm. and be happy with it and also if i fail at anything at least i did it my way and i failed and i feel like a lot of the um sort of the guilt and the frustration is just not finally working through the final details of exactly how you want to execute and if but if you if you chris work through your schedule so you you mm. think about, is it reasonable to be away a night or two a week or whatever else? Well, if you mm. had another job, you might be also doing that. Yeah. But if you work it through and think, is this reasonable? Mm. Is it what I'm happy with? If it is, execute on it. Don't feel guilty. I travel mm. a lot and I don't feel guilty. I, I'll go away and sometimes stay an extra night. I don't feel guilty. My kids are a bit older now, but, but also it's an appropriate amount of time. It's okay to have a bit of me time. There's no point coming home really tired. Might as well take an extra day. Enjoy mm. New York or... Mm. wherever we're going but what you're saying is it's the final decision to go yeah this is what i think is right this is what i've decided that's exactly and with your other half and all your family and or kids and all your colleagues yeah is is that ecosystem is that okay with that Mm. do people here mind if i'm away an extra day they probably like it (laughs) (laughs) but it might be a problem yeah so but if, if they're okay with it i'm okay with it home's okay with it do it recharge myself come back and i think that maybe maybe the um the Oxford education helps with clear thinking, but clear thinking helps with all these little nuances, doesn't it? And, and many of us aren't trained to think clearly and haven't had the benefit of uh, maybe the, the kind of mentors that really helped us. The, fi- it's the, the final few thought processes to get to real clarity. And then when you've got that, all the fuzz has gone. Yeah. Boom. You've also you've got to be able to have the you've got to have the confidence to be able to manage expectations too, right? It's, it's some of some of it comes with confidence and like cl- you know clearly it's your business like you. Yeah, I'm you, not really lacking in confidence, you, right? And so, I mean, when I was first off with the job, you're not lacking in confidence either. <laughs> not like not so much these days. I think you yeah, you know we can feel it. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. I th- so when I was first off with the job, um, my boss at the time, so my current boss, said to me, you know, obviously you've got a slightly different setup to me, and you know that will you know, that'll bring some limitations. You know, I'm out doing breakfast three times a week. I've got a lunch, I've got a couple of dinners, you know, so we're going to have to think about like, how you're going to be able to do that. I said, no, no, we're not actually. We're going to have to think about how the role will look for somebody like me. We're going to yeah, have to think about agreed. like, what are the priorities for me in this role? Like, I don't need to be doing the same job that you did. I'm actually, we're really different people. We're going to do it in a different way. Um, and there are other things that I will do that are not, you know, they're not what you know you didn't you weren't able to bring to the job um but it's not the case that i'm gonna you know you've you've built the blueprint and it's my job just to fit into that blueprint you know that's not going to work for me and it wouldn't work for anybody walking into the job either for that matter um but you have to be in a position where you can say that to someone yeah and that's that is requires confidence you see it in uh sports management and other things like that when the the manager changes are they going to do it their way if they don't it doesn't really work and then they've got this regret that they didn't even do it their way and they failed Whereas if you, it's what I was saying before, if you decide, if you do it your way and succeed, you'll be happy. If you do it your way and fail, you'll be happy. If you try and do what you should do and what everyone else, the weight of everyone else's expectations, it doesn't really work. But I think, I think confidence is so important in helping break through that. And then also how you communicate. You've, you've talked quite a lot about the little dialogues that you're having with people to make sure they also understand where you're coming from, which takes another round of skills, EQ skills. Where did you learn those? Um, not sure. I mean, I think... You know, you manage people for long enough. I think you start to fit. And, and you, you talked about EQ earlier on. I think EQ is probably the single biggest skill that you need when you're managing people and you're running a business. Because actually your ability to understand the way that people think and, and, and are going to receive what you're saying to them, to anticipate some of the, the concerns that they're going to have and to try and get around those. Like, 
to me, it's the most, it's the single most important thing to, to have. I think it's hard to learn, but I think you can tune into to, to your people. Um, and I think you can, if you're open to hearing it and you're open-minded, you can start to tune into what they're saying. But I think years as a manager teaches you how to, how to handle any dynamic with people, how to handle any situation. But it's 10 years of managing people, 15 is that long, years. Is that what you've done? It's a long time. Um, what, what's, what was it like when you first started? We, we do a lot of work with people who are entry level into management. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Did um, you make a lot of mistakes there? Yeah. I did. Yeah, so many mistakes. Me too. Um, yeah, Chris did. I, yeah, awful I watched some of yours. <laughs> yeah, you did. You, you were, were some of mine. You were there to pick me up. You were some of mine. I had, straight out of university, I had a, I had quite a volatile boss, actually. You know, very much like this, this person needs a bit of a rocket. You know, this person, you know, it's a public or private, but just a bit of a smack around, you know. And that was my first blueprint for, for management. And I probably was a bit like that. I know I was. I was like that um, as a as a manager and as a colleague, actually. It was one of those people who just, like, I, you would know what I thought. And I suppose I was confident in a different way. Like, I kind of didn't care what impact, or I didn't really realise what kind of impact I was having on people around me. And I remember sitting in a, it's like a management training meeting, um, and people talked about radical candor. The guy who was running it talked yeah. about the radical candor model. And it was like a light bulb went on for me. And I was like, okay, I, okay, you do, okay, I've got it. Like you can do this in a really different way. Like you can, you can have those feelings and you can have that approach to, you know, you can, you can, you can express yourself in quite a direct way. Mm but you can find a different form for it. And you can, you can also have the level of care yeah, that yeah. helps it come across you well. You can find a different framework for it. And as soon as I realised that, as soon as I learned that lesson, I remember I remember where I was when I when we had that meeting. Can I just, Absolutely. I'd like to pause this. This isn't an advert for management training. <laughs> but what Terry is saying is that a light bulb went on for her in a course and it's completely changed the way Honestly. she approaches her work. I mean, a lot of people say these courses don't do anything, Chris. No. I just want to just reiterate this yeah, advert yeah. for interactive workshops <laughs> by Terry. Courses can actually change the course of your career. Sorry, Terry, carry on. Well, I will say it wasn't a course with you, right? Uh, so sorry. it's also not an advert, you know, but yeah. it is, I mean, I, I I, I absolutely it. believe it. No, just no, no, generically I, for management courses. I think, yeah, I think it's. I, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent. I think you, you know, you've got to have people in the room who are willing to listen and are willing to, you know, kind of learn something about themselves. But I absolutely, a light bulb went on. And, but I, the other thing that happened is that I then started pushing an entire agenda around, you know, radical candor, like the way that we treat people, the way that we talk about them, the, you know, taking some of the emotion and some of the, you know, the kind of the kind of personal feeling out of management, right? That's not what it is. And and that, I think, had a big impact on the, the way that the culture at Dartmouth has grown because there were other managers who were impacted by that. So you were able to sort of push out the frontiers of your value set and what you had learned, and you were able to start impacting the culture. Yeah, yeah. And yours, what you're saying about radical candor is something that I've always found very important, which is that we very often got something to say, we say it to the wrong person. So if we've been in a meeting and I've got a problem with you, I go out and talk to Chris about it. And it's it's a very simple kind of human level behavior. For some reason, we don't want to talk to the person. We want mm. to talk to everyone mm. else. We also then hold back on the things that would be really valuable to say. Yet, if we can find, if we can find the words, if we can get the dialogues working, and, and if we can do it in a, on a cultural level, then work becomes a lot, lot easier. And, um, but it's, I don't know what it is. It takes a selflessness to have radical candor. Yeah. Because when you speak really honestly, you're mm. you're risking. You are. You are. But you can only you can only ever be responsible for what you bring to a conversation, right? You can only ever be responsible for the the feelings, the approach, the words, you know, that's that's on you, right? And you have to be really thoughtful about that and really considerate. But you can't be responsible for what the other person brings to that conversation, yeah. the baggage, the, you know, the kind of the last boss, the, you know, all of that stuff. In the end, like, I think if you, once you realize that bit, once you realize where your responsibility starts and ends, you can start to take that risk because you can, you can, you can quantify it. You can say, okay, well, I'm, I'm confident in what I'm going to bring to this conversation. I don't know quite how it's going to land, but I can, I can take account, accountability for the, con you know, the, the, yeah. the consequences of that. And, and how the other person responds isn't my responsibility. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I can couch things in the best possible way. I can do it at the right time. I can use the right uh, intonation. I can try and be very good citizen in terms of not blaming people. I can try and use facts rather than opinions, all the things I can do. But how that person reacts, that's up to them. Outside and of your control, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 
But that's why people hold back also is because they want to try and control the situation. Mm. And they don't, and by not bringing things up or not being mm. uh, open and honest, not being radically candorous, yeah. they, yeah. they con- you're trying to control the situation by not bringing things up. Yeah. But you're doing them a disservice in the end, you know, you, not raising these things with people. You know, they, some people might be mortified to hear the way you, you know, think about them or, you know, they've done this thing or whatever, you know, they, they, if, if only they had the chance to hear it. You know, they would learn something from that, and mm. it, you, you know, I think you're failing people by by not doing it. Mm. Um, and again, I talk about responsibility a lot. It's really boring, but like, <laughs> you know, like the job. And people, can, you know, people say you're excited about the job. You're excited about it. It's a real responsibility. And yes, it's exciting. And you know, it's like my parents are really proud. And you know, there's all <laughs> of that all proud. stuff. <laughs> Very proud. But 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 you know, like I I think I think that people who come to work with a real sense of responsibility and a sense of kind of service to the people around them are some of your best colleagues like generally speaking they're the people who do the, the most for the firm they go the furthest because they're there they're there in order to help other people and that gets recognized yeah and that uh, element of radical, radical candor comes back to what you said right at the start of noticing that moment when it's your opportunity to say something oh this is my moment i'm supposed yeah. to oh, say something me. i've noticed yeah it's me um, but that that um is also part of our synergy area isn't it it's yeah that we're not really working in a relationship unless I'm honest with you. And if we don't have that honesty, then we have individuals under the illusion that it could be in a team or a relationship, but we're not really working together. And then each person's just doing their own bit. So that, that breaking through with that truth, that, that honesty is actually partly what allows people to work together and directing those conversations so they happen well is a skill that we can develop. And I think it takes a lot of courage. I also, I mean, I think that the, how you develop a culture is hard because individually, I think people can, can buy into that. I think you have to develop a culture where there's just permission to have some of those conversations yeah. where there's, you know, it's, it's understood that, yeah, we'll say some direct things sometimes and we'll say some stuff that, you know, you might not like, but it will never be about you. It will always be about your work. It will always be about, you know, some of the challenges that we're facing and like you, you can receive it that way or not, but that's what we're going to do. I want it. I would like to ask you one to sort of have a little section at the end of this uh, podcast just to discuss about getting a new job because I realize, I mean, how many, how many candidates do you think Dartmouth have placed over the time that it's been in existence? Is it in the tens of thousands? Yeah, it will be. Yeah. So tens of thousands of people have moved jobs or got jobs through you and your team. If I was starting out, if I was a senior trying to move and I'm thinking about making a change, what, what's, the, your, what's your aggregate advice for those people? And also, as the recruiter, are you how, how honest are you with them about what they can and can't do and what they should and shouldn't say? Or Well, well I'll give you my advice first and then you can decide how honest I am. But I think <laughs> the, the thing that I tell people all the time, internally and externally, is don't ever confuse change with progress. Oh. Because so often... I find anyway, particularly with people who are in their first job, they're looking for their second job or the third, you know, whatever it is. It's so often they can feel that sense of like, am I really progressing? Am I really moving forward? I know how I'm going to change it. I'm going to have a diagnosis. I'm going to change something. I'm going to go to a different job and it might be a totally lateral move. It might be the same job with a different name above the door and it'll take a year before they trust me and take a year for me to really understand what I'm doing. And at that point, everyone else has moved on another year um and like maybe that's the right move and maybe it's not but i don't think people necessarily diagnose that well enough i don't think they really i don't think they really look at that question of like is this progress or is it change and i mean i'm talking as somebody who's worked for the same company for the last 10 years 11 years and i've worked for the same person for the last 14 years but you've made a lot of progress i've made a lot of progress without the change maybe and and, you know maybe there are moments where I sh- should have made a change. Like maybe I should have, you know, resigned at some point, gone and done something different. It's, I suppose, it's hard to know. It's hard to know what the, that reality would have looked like. But I think so often, part of the reason that people's careers don't pan out or progress in the way that they would hope is because they resigned at the wrong time. Like they made a change at the wrong time. They quit at the wrong moment. And that judgment call of when it's the right time and when it's not is really hard. Mm. But I've said this to a lot of candidates over the years. Like I've got one in mind in particular. Um, I'm having this conversation with right now you shouldn't like you know folding in your cards and you know throwing them in is 
it's not the right thing to do. And from a recruitment perspective, like that's how we make money. You know, it's yeah. great if you could just, you know, every candidate said, oh, I'm sick of this, you know, off I, off I go. But it's terrible career advice. And we're very honest about where somebody wants to go and how they're going to get there. We talk about classroom to boardroom recruitment. So, you know, supporting on all of those moments in someone's career where they're on that journey from, from you know, school, university, right to, you know, kind of very senior role. Um, and, like, you have to think about the long term if you're yeah. going to build a relationship with those okay. people. It's built into the DNA of the business. You can't shortchange them with a really, you know, sort of, you know bad advice that's short-term yeah. benefit to you. Yeah. Um, is it progress or change is just a great addition to the lexicon of um, knowledge that we yeah. love to mull and Don't here. confuse change with progress. Yeah, what I'm thinking also is really interesting. So we're often involved in leadership development or um, you know, management development within companies. And as part of that, we do a lot of coaching work. So we're on the other half of the conversation that you're having. Yeah. We're on the other end of the phone. We're in a, a meeting room or in a, a coffee area and we're having a one-to-one -one coaching. And... They're maybe not telling us that they're speaking to recruitment and thinking about leaving, but they're, they're saying, I'm really unhappy here. My boss, X, my team, Y, this company, X. And I, well, I, I try and say to them is, if at all possible, stay until after you've worked through this problem. Because once you've worked through this problem, you've got great options and you've learned from working through this problem. But if you just reactively leave, you actually haven't learned anything through this. And let's instead try and deal with the tricky boss and get a better working rhythm. Let's try and deal with the difficult company and get the pay rise that we didn't get. And then when we got all that, if you then want to leave, then do it. But don't leave just because you can't make things work out. And um, it's interesting that I, I never really thought through what's going on on the other side. Yeah. You know, I know, that I know that friends are very likely to tell people to, that they kind of over-empathize. Oh, just, you know, that's horrible. they they over-agree. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's terrible. Your company should never do that. Your boss should never have said that. Did they really not pay you that? Did you really have to do that? You're fr for some reason, people's friends are like the wrong echo chamber. <laughs> but the people who understand how to progress, we're kind of giving a similar kind of advice, which is work through this situation and get to a good place and then leave then if you want yeah. to. Yeah. You're so, I mean, you're so right, actually, in the analogy. So I, I talk about, you know, you're trying to wear in a, a new pair of shoes. And, you know, there'll be moments where you, you have those pressure points, right, where you're trying to, you know, it's mm. like it's, there's, a, there's a spot that's particularly problematic. And, like, you could either take off the shoes, chuck them in, and, you know, start with a new pair of shoes. Like, maybe they'll rob you, maybe they won't. Like, or you work through it. You, you know, you figure out, okay, like, how, how's it going to feel? How are they going to suit me? How are they going to fit me after I've gone through this? Because you might find that, actually, once you've removed one or two of those pressure points, like it's a great job, it's a great opportunity, it's you know exa exactly where you need to be. But you're right, if you never work through that problem, the only thing that you learn from it is how to walk away when you've got a problem. And uh, you know, um, there, I'm sure there are plenty of careers that haven't been, you know, g you know, kind of um, ruined by that. But I, I think that you would have a more fulfilling career. Yeah, or maybe just persevere enough to. If you, re it may not be solvable, but persevere yeah. enough that you can walk out with your head held high saying, I've yeah. really tried hard. I mean, like a bad relationship actually at home. It's worth working at. If you really have to leave, fine. But don't don't quit just because it's difficult. Work through as much as you can. If you can't get past that, maybe it's time to find somebody else. You know? I find fr friends do often ask me for career advice, actually. And I'm, I'm very brutal. <laughs> I'm very brutal. Like often my advice is, well, like how hard have you tried at this? Like what yeah. have you actually said or done <laughs> to try and change the situation? You know, you, like you're complaining to me and you've got, you know, you've got all the talk when you're with me. But like what, what conversations have you actually had with people? And I think, you know, outside work, even inside work, sometimes people want to people want to have the conversation. They want to complain, but they don't necessarily want to solve a problem. They just want permission to walk away. They want permission to opt out yeah. of what yeah. is potentially quite a challenging situation. And I never give them the permission. I always say, "No, That's no, good of you. Get, no, get no, back good back to the table, yeah, back to the negotiating yeah. table. You need to sort this out." Agree. Being and, a good and friend as well. Most people, most people, the difficult boss, the, the whatever, they are actually really reasonable. And sometimes it's also you, isn't it? Sometimes your boss is difficult for a reason. It's because maybe you're not delivering or maybe you're difficult to manage. I mean, I would be very difficult to manage. <laughs> but, I've know. been difficult to manage. Yeah, exactly. But, but, you know, it takes a bigger perspective. And I think, again, our friends don't always help us because they don't say, oh, it's possibly you as well. So, but this is where, like the again, the interpersonal skills, every relationship's two people. So if it's not working, it's two people. You've said before you take responsibility. How much do you, do you take? 
if you blame the other person, you're not really taking very much. So I try and think, what can I do about this? And I don't always do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, sometimes you, you, just, you, know, you just don't want to. There's, yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of effort, doesn't it, to, to help get those relationships better. Terry, what's next for Dartmouth Partners and your leadership there? Um, we So we just took private equity investment um, back in April, which is really exciting. So we have yeah. a new round of investors, which uh, is all about growth. And, you know, I... I think it's, it's kind of a Ray Dalio um, uh, kind of ethos, but very much, you know, we, we try and hire ambitious, bright, you know, go-getters who want to build something, do something. You've got to cre- keep growing. Like you've got to you've got to give them a path. Otherwise, they'll outgrow you. Like if all your best people outgrow you, then you're kind of done at some point. So you've got to keep growing. And so the 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 mandate is very much keep growing the business. Um, my boss read uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great, 10 years ago, so 30% growth year on year. Like that's what we think about. That's one of our, one of our mantras. Um, so I'll be looking at international in particular. That's one of the things that I haven't done a lot of because I've been focused on London. Um, but international is exciting. You're in New York. We're it's in New York. really exciting. It's the exciting, land of opportunity. Yeah, um, yeah but there's yeah. more countries, isn't there? There's, uh, there's Dubai, there's Singapore, yeah. there's all of Europe. There's absolutely. places to go. And there's a great synergy from working in these different countries. Yeah, yeah, there absolutely is. That, that gravitational field that I talked about, that's exactly what uh, you have as soon as you're working internationally. So many, so many of our clients are international. And so it just it helps you to, to, to build a really, yeah holistic business well terry we're just like your parents we're all cheerleading you on yeah we've had an excellent podcast this has been very fun thank you for being here chris how does interactive workshops help people in things like candor and synergy well as you've uh, rightly advertised during the podcast we are running these kind of workshops helping people understand things like radical candor hopefully having some of those epiphanies those moments of that's why my managers like that or that's my moment to speak up in my team or something similar to that. We're yeah. doing a lot of that with clients all over the world, aren't we? It's really fun. It's great and fun. Terry, thank you for coming. Thanks for inviting me. Will you come back again when you've learned some more stuff that you uh, can share? Because you're going to be learning it. a lot. You, you're, you like that? Yeah, well, you can come and teach me some stuff. I'll come back and talk about it. Okay, yeah. well, we, we could do a bit of that, yeah. yeah. But will you come back again? Please do. Okay. And we'll see you in the city. Amazing. Of see London. You Love thank it. you both. Thank you. See you soon. See you soon.